0: may be seated. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As you're turning there, church, I want to start a little bit differently this morning. Uh, I want to uh, begin this morning by reading to you a, a modern-day parable uh, by Theodore Weddell. It's lengthy, uh, but listen listen closely because I think it's an accurate critique of our day. It says this, uh, the parable starts, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred, stood a life saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves and went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many of those who were rescued and others from the surrounding area wished to become associated with the life-saving station to give their time, their money, their effort for the support of its work. New boat, boats were bought and new crews were trained, and the life-saving station grew. In time, some of the crew became concerned that the station was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more spacious place would be provided, should be provided as the first refuge for those snatched from the danger of the sea. The emergency cots were replaced with beds. The furniture was, per- was purchased uh, for the enlarged building. The station became a popular gathering place for its members as they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. Fewer members were now interested in leaving the plush station to go to the sea on life-saving missions. So they hired out substitutes to do that work. However, they retained the life saving theme in the club's decorations, and a ceremonial lifeboat lay in the room where the club initiations were held. On a dark, stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast. The hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half drowned people. They were dirty, they were sick, they were obviously from distant shores. The station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that people planned uh, for uh, outbuildings to be constructed so that future shipwrecks could be processed with less disruption. Eventually, a rift developed in the station. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the station's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to their normal social life. Some insisted, however, that that rescue was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But the latter were ignored and told that if they wanted to keep saving lives as their primary purpose, then they should go and begin their own station down the coast, which they did. Over time, those individuals fell prey to the same temptations as the first group, coming to care more about comforting one another than rescuing the perishing. After a while, a few of them, remembering their real purpose, split off to establish yet another life-saving station, and on and on it went. And today, if you visit that seacoast, you'll find a number of impressive, life-saving stations along the shore. Sadly, though, shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but most of the people are lost. It's a heart-wrenching story, and the parable is, is it, it hits firmly and deeply. It was written in recent years, but it really goes all the way back to Paul's concern for the church of Ephesus. If you think about the, the book of 1 Timothy and what we've been studying in the first chapter... Paul's great fear was that the vibrant, life-saving station in Ephesus, which if I can remind you is the, the principal lighthouse for all of Asia Minor, Paul was concerned that it would put out its light or forget its mission. And so last week, Paul charged Timothy to combat anyone or anything that would be a different from the true gospel that he had been given To single-mindedly commit himself and focus on the pure gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he did, and the priority of that gospel above all else. And here as we start today in chapter 2, Paul gives explicit instructions to the Ephesian church and to Timothy how to pray so that this life-saving gospel will continue to go out and so that other people will hear of Jesus who brings eternal life. It's clear to see Paul's concern if you connect it with chapter 1. And I, I need to keep reminding us of this, church. When Paul wrote this, it didn't have chapters and verses. This is a letter. And so we often, in our minds, because we see chapters and verses, we disconnect it from what we see previously in the, in the letter. But for Paul, it's, that's not the case. This is all one stream of... This is one thought for Paul. And what Paul's saying is that if you listen to the myths and the endless genealogies that, 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 that Paul gives... In chapter 1, if you listen to Hymenaeus and Alexander and this false doctrine that they're peddling, if you listen to that, you'll become this little elitist colony or country club that thinks only of itself. On the other hand, though, what we're going to see this morning in chapter 2, Paul's concern is that even in verse 1, if you just glance at it with a cursory glance, verse 1, that you would offer prayers for all people, Paul says. Why? Because there's a desire in God that all peoples would be saved, verse 5. Such that, verse 6, Jesus would give his life for all peoples. Verse 6, which means, verse 7, that you have a ministry that extends to Gentiles. In other words, all peoples. In other words, you can see what Paul is saying here. If, if you leave, or when you leave, those elitist self-focused, self-absorbed false doctrines that are being propagated, when you leave that junk behind, you'll see that there is a beautiful uh, universality in the gospel that demands we take the good news to everyone, everywhere, without distinction and without hesitation. That's the main point. That's what Paul's thesis is in chapter 2, at least the first seven verses that we're going to see this morning of chapter 2. That's his purpose, but the question is, how does he do that? How does he argue that point? How's he working that out in this letter to Timothy? Well, I'll give you the outline for our sermon this morning because it's the outline of the text, and it's the way in which Paul argues for this, uh, this, this gospel proclamation to all kinds, types, groups of people. So first, We see that we're called to global prayer and godly living. You see that in verses 1 and 2. We'll see what that means in a little bit more detail in a moment. Second, we see that we're given the glorious theological grounds behind this call. So Paul gives the call, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 6, he says, here's the motivation, here's the theological truth undergirding the call that I just gave you in the first two verses. And in 3, we see the great implications of this call. How does it work itself out? What does it look like within the local church to uphold this call for these theological reasons? That's what you see in verse seven. So let's jump in. The first observation we're called to global prayer and godly living. Look at verses one and two. Hear the word of the Lord, church family. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for. All people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul begins. First of all, you may ask, why in the world would Paul say that? Right? It's it's easy to see. This is not the first thing that Paul has said in this letter. Beyond that, it's clear to see that this is not even the first thing that Paul has said in the way of charging Timothy to do something in this letter. He gave him instructions last week in things he should do as, as the elder, as the pastor, as the leader there in Ephesus. We saw him charge Timothy to combat false teaching. So this isn't first of all, unless Paul's not talking about chronology and he's talking about importance. Right. Paul, and when he says first of all here, he's not, he's not talking about in the, in the order of things that I'm explaining to you. This is, certainly this is not first in chronology, but it is first in priority. It is of first importance. It's the first thing I have to tell you, Timothy, as you begin to do this. What I'm saying to you next, Timothy, is of paramount importance. In other words, Timothy, if you're going to stand on the gospel, and if you're going to combat false teaching, you must, before anything else, devote yourselves to prayer devote yourself to prayer. And in fact, he says that with four different words and you see them in the text, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. And some pastors have tried to parse those out. And, uh, and some teachers have tried to come up some commentaries that you may read, come up with different ways to pray based on these four words that Paul uses, or maybe a model for prayer that would include these four things. And that's fine. Uh, I don't think it's the primary reason that Paul uses these four words here, though. Uh, I don't think he's he's trying to give us necessarily, though you can take away some truth in the the explanation of these words. I think he's preaching. I think Paul's adding emphasis here. I think he's exhorting Timothy with emphasis. Timothy, pray. Timothy, beg God. Timothy, make supplications. Timothy, intercede on behalf of of the people there and around the world. Timothy, be a man of prayer. I think he's, he's emphasizing here. More than he's giving a, a contradiction in these four terms. Think about this church. Think back to the parable that, that we started with this morning of the life-saving mission that the church has. Surrounded by people who don't know the salvation of Jesus Christ. Surrounded church. We as a church here and you in your workplace and your neighborhoods and your communities where you live. We are surrounded by people that are destined for an eternity in a literal place called hell. And so as followers of Jesus, what can you do? You can pray. You can pray. It's the easiest thing, in fact, that you can do. It requires no training. You don't have to go to seminary to know how to pray. You, you don't have to, uh, to, to even get out of bed. You, you could literally do it before your feet hit the floor in the morning. You don't have to have special tools or a lot of money. You don't even have to have assistance from anyone else. You can pray, believer. Do you want to have influence on the lost around you? Do you want to have influence on unreached peoples around the world this morning? Do you want to have influence on your enemies, those that hate you? Do you want to have influence uh, seeing people come to an an eternity in heaven instead of dying going to a a literal place called hell? Then pray, believer. That's what Paul's exhorting Timothy. Pray, believer. Pray. Well, we're supposed to pray. That's clear in the text. The question may arise, well, whom should we pray for? Paul answers that as well. Every kind of person, Timothy. Every kind of person. And we know that's what, Tim, uh, what Paul means here. When he, pray, when he says pray for all people, or your translation may say everyone in verse 1. But we know that what Paul means here is every kind of person or every group of people or every type of person. You think about it, think about it logically. There's no way that Paul means for every individual Christian to pray for every individual person on the planet, right? That's impossible. I highly doubt that we could even do that for every individual person in, in Franklin County. And so he's not saying pray for every individual person, Timothy. Paul's talking about kinds of persons, types of people, groups of people, nations of people. You say, well, Matt, how in the world do you know that? Well, think about the context. Think about who Paul's writing to. He's writing to the, uh, the church in Ephesus that is filled with Jew and Gentile believers, people from different backgrounds culturally that have come together because they believe the gospel, and it's in the context of false teachers who are limiting salvation to a, a group of elite people that will follow additional rules, and Paul's saying hogwash with all that. Our prayer is not limited to a certain elitist group, prayer's not uh, elitist or nationalistic or racist or selective. Instead, there is no category of person we should not be praying for. That's what Paul said. Everyone, every group of, of people. We need diversity in our prayers, church family. Think about your own prayer life for a moment. And don't think uh, for, for a moment about our, 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 your neighbor sitting next to you or somebody else in this faith family. Think about your prayer, the way you spend time on your face before the Lord. And think about the people that you specifically name in prayer. I hope you name people in prayer, by the way. I hope you have our church membership and you're praying by name for the people in our church membership. We should be praying for one another as a faith family. But think about the people that you name in your prayers. How are they like you? How are they different from you? Have you excluded groups of people? Maybe not even intentionally, but just because you haven't thought about it. Paul's exhorting us here to Pray for everyone, for all peoples. Let's not be a life-saving station church. Let's not be a life-saving mission church that's concerned with our own comfort to the neglect of the people dying around us. If you pray for... Listen, church, and and just hear my heart here. If if, if you think about your own prayer life, as as I've asked you to do even in this moment, and, and as you think about your own prayer life, if you're praying more for your uncle's illness than you are for Muslims to come to faith in Christ, then your prayer life needs to change. If, if you're praying more for Republican leaders than you are for Democratic leaders, then church, your, your prayer life needs to change. Church, if you're praying more for social issues here in America than you are the advance of the gospel beyond America, then church, your prayer life needs to expand. And hear me closely. Hear my heart. Don't just tune out because I said that and it sounds political. I'm not saying your prayers are wrong. Those are good and right things to pray for. They're just too narrow. They're not not including all of what Paul would command us here in the book of 1 Timothy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. when we pray, we pray for everyone. We pray for all peoples. We don't serve a little village God who's concerned with just what's happening right here at, at Poplar Spring in Franklin County. Our prayer life has to be as broad and as wide as God's heart, which is for the entire world. Well, Paul goes on to confirm that idea of praying for all types of people by giving us a very specific example. Next, keep following with me in the text. In verse 2, he says, Within this broader category of all kinds of people that we should be praying for, Paul specifically mentions, verse 2, kings and all of those who are in authority. So leaders in high positions, in places of authority. Now, I realize this morning, church, that on this campus this morning, under the sound of my voice, there are people with very strong political convictions, about how things should be done here in in our country. but Here's what I want you to hear. No matter how strongly you feel about the U.S. and politics here, it doesn't come close to how startling this exhortation would have been in Paul's context. Like Disconnect your mind from thinking about things here, and for a second go back to Ephesus, right, where Paul's writing this letter. These folks that Paul's exhorting to pray for their leaders and rulers and high authorities, kings that he just named— these people are living under the rule of Nero. Now, you may not know who that is. And that's okay. Nero's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's emperor. He's emperor of Rome, the most powerful empire that's ever existed at this point in history. And not only is he emperor of Rome, his word was law. <laughs> so when he said it, it was law, it was official. Oh, and by the way, he hated and violently persecuted Christians. Uh, John Fox, in his book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, talks about Nero's persecution of the Christians. And he would, he would wrap them in animal skins so that they looked like animals. And he would release wild beasts that would eat them alive as they screamed in agony, being torn apart by wild animals. He would also cover them in, in wax and hoist them up on top of lampposts and light them on fire to serve as, as lanterns in his garden that he could see to walk at night. That's the guy that Paul's telling them to pray for. This is the dude that Paul is commanding the the Christians in Ephesus to pray for. So I don't care how bad you think we have it here. It doesn't come close to that, right? And Paul commands them to pray for those pagan rulers. Those pagan leaders that would just assume kill them. That's the king you're to suffer under. Pray for him. Pray for him. Pray for the king that just murdered your son or daughter. Pray for him. Pray for the leader that hates you. Pray for the ruler that you don't approve of. This is God's will for your life, church in Ephesus. That's a hard pill to swallow. And this is not just some story. This is literally the the situation in Ephesus and what they're living under. Church, the practical application here is obvious, isn't it? That as the church, as Christians in America, pray for your president. Whether you like him, whether you don't like him, pray for him. And whoever that president will be next year... You pray for them. Whether you like them, whether you don't like them, you pray for them. Our governor, our senators, our representatives, our local leaders here, even in our own town, we pray for them. We pray for them. In addition, pray for countries where there is real and actual persecution taking place. Places like Iran or Afghanistan or North Korea. Pray for leaders in those countries. Are you praying for these men and women? Or do we spend more time watching the news and getting frustrated and angry with them? Right? Early church father, John Christostom, living still under persecution, he was maybe the first one to say that it is is more difficult to hate someone when you're praying for them. So, When you're watching the evening news or scrolling on the social media and you feel rage building up inside of you towards some group or party or leader, ask yourself, have I prayed for them today? Probably not. Stop and pray for them. We're commanded in Scripture to do that. There's a second part of this calling, though. I told you our first point, verses 1 and 2, is that you're called to global prayer for all people and godly living. So let's look at the second part of that, this idea of godly living. So Paul says, pray for these rulers, these kings and people in places of high authority. Then he continues, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I need to make something clear here. I think our temptation when we read this and in the... The, the maybe where our heart would automatically go is that we read this and we think the end result, that peaceful and quiet life is some sort of quiet, middle-class, cushy, stress-free, worry-free life, like your, your best life now sort of thing. But that, that's not what Paul's talking about, because if you get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, that's what he just said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't sound like to me a fluffy, cushy, uh, best life now kind of situation. So that's not what Paul's saying. His prayer here, though, for those in places of authority, for kings and rulers in high places, his prayer for for them is, is, is asked so that peaceful conditions may exist in which Christians can freely live out exemplary lives so that an unsaved world would speak well of Christ and his followers. He uses the same kind of language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, again, writing there, he's exhorting believers. He says, live quietly. Live quietly so that you may walk properly before outsiders. All throughout Paul's letters, we're exhorted to proclaim the gospel with our lips, to teach the gospel with our lips. So when he says live quietly, he's obviously not talking about hush and don't, don't, don't share the gospel with your lost neighbors. What he's saying is live in a way such that your actions don't contradict the words you're saying so that you have the opportunity to share those words, the most precious words in all the world, or the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let your actions, don't be caught up in civilian affairs such that you miss that opportunity. The fact is, church, the best argument for and against Christianity is Christianity, or maybe more precisely, how Christians practice their Christianity. Now listen to me close. I don't want you to misunderstand what I just said there. Genuine Christian faith, lived out, is not enough to lead someone else to saving faith in Christ, but it can make inroads to saving faith where other things cannot. I'm going to say that again because that's a mouthful. Genuine Christian faith, lived out, is not enough by itself to lead someone else to saving faith in Christ. But it can make inroads to saving faith in someone else in ways that few other things can. In other words, we must still share with our lips the good news of Jesus Christ, his atoning death. And living out that faith in his death is not enough by itself to lead someone to Christ. We must still open our mouths and proclaim the good news, but not living out that faith in Christ... It can be enough to prohibit you from having the opportunity to share that good news. How many times is that the case, church? Where the thing we we say and we believe in our heart is the truth, it's the most precious truth in all of the world, that Jesus Christ saves. But the way we live prohibits us from ever having the opportunity to say that thing to someone in a meaningful way that they'll hear and understand and believe because our life reflects the change that that's made. So that's the first point. You're called to global prayer and godly living so that the gospel will advance and increase in the world. We have to understand this, church. We have to be obedient to this call. Salvation ultimately belongs to God. And even our prayers, even the things we're commanded to do there, that the global prayer that's commanded of us, even that prayer life is His work in us, right? Here's the mystery of all of this. God has sovereignly chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his will of saving the lost all over the planet. God has sovereignly, in his infinite wisdom, sovereignly chosen to use your prayers, your prayers, the prayers of the church, his people, to accomplish his will of saving the lost in every nation, among every tribe, and every tongue. How does that work? That's a good question. You got me, Right? Like I'm not going to resolve that for you this morning because I can't answer that. You can ask him when you see him in glory one day. It's the testimony of scripture and I believe it. I can't work it out for you in a way that's going to resolve everything and satisfy your questions. But I know that based on the scriptures, we are uh, given church, as the church, a life-saving mission. And we're called to the task of prayer and godly living. And God uses that prayer, those prayers for the salvation of his peoples on every nation and among every people. So, before we move to point number two, I want to read you a quote. It's a plea. It's really a a way to beg you to heed this call. And and as I read it, I thought, man, there's no way I could beg you more clearly than this this plea. So, this is from Richard Baxter in the 17th century. Listen to what he says to, to his church family. He says, let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them. And if they die, unregenerate, meaning unborn again, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rocks? Have you hearts of rock that you cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves For it is not the frame of spirit utterly consistent with grace. Do you live close by them? Or do you meet them in the streets? Or do you work with them? Or do you travel with them? Or do you sit and talk with them and say nothing to them of their souls? If their house were on fire, you would run to help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? That's the urgent call we have, church. That's why we have global prayer and godly living as the task that we've been called to here in the first two verses. Eternal souls are at stake. Eternal souls are, are right around you at the cubicle next to you at work. Right? On the construction jobs, job site, right beside you, hammering and nailing all day. Those people's souls are at stake. Second point, second observation in the text. We are given the glorious theological grounds behind this call. If that's the call, verses 1 and 2, here's the motivation for it in verses 3 through 6. Let's hear the word of God. It says, This is good, meaning those prayers, that godly living. This is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, Which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here's Paul giving Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and us today, the theological grounds, the motivation for this call that he just gave in the first two verses. And it's twofold. The the, the grounds, the theological grounds, motivation is twofold. First is God's desire, it's where he goes first. He says, This is good and it's pleasing, Paul says. He's talking about the prayer and the the praying for all kinds of people or all peoples. Why is it good? Well, verses 3 and 4, because God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved, right? So you see what Paul's doing, right? He's clearly, again, and intentionally assaulting the exclusivist false teachers in Ephesus, Right? Remember, you, you can't separate what it might sound like it means for us from what it meant for them in the original context that it was given. Right. That's who he's combating, the false teachers that are propagating myths and endless genealogies. He's saying this idea that they have, the us, for, and no more, it doesn't fly. It won't work because the gospel won't allow us to sit on our hands. Because God's desire is to save from among every person, nation, tribe, and tongue. Revelation 7. We know that's what's going to happen. So the gospel demands that you can't have this sort of spiritual elitism that was a problem in the church of Ephesus. And don't think it's just a, tr- a problem in the church of Ephesus. Right? Like This is a problem throughout church history. You get to the 18th century, and this sort of mentality had worked its way into the Baptist churches in England. Right? And, and, and William Carey is so infuriated with this mindset, this mentality, that he, that he does something and he speaks up. And for those that don't know, I, uh, I did my doctoral research on William Carey because I'm so fascinated with his story that at a time in church history when no one got this, no one was understanding this, at least in the Baptist, the Baptist denomination in England, William Carey reads the scriptures and he goes, this is not cutting it. Carey literally, his mentor in the faith, man who had, had, uh, had, had, had led him to, to faith and baptized him and, and discipled him, Kerry pitches this idea for taking the gospel to other nations, and his mentor says, and I quote, Young man, sit down. If God desires to convert the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. And Carrie hears that, and he's, he's, he's going, That's inconsistent with the call that we're given in the scriptures. God desires that all peoples be saved, and all peoples have not heard, so we must go to them. And Kerry, this would be the final straw for Carry. Eventually, he would leave for India, where he would give the rest of his life, 40 years, and never return home again to England. And many now re- regard him or, or call him the father of the modern missionary movement for this reason, that he wrote on this topic, and, and then not just wrote on it, but he actually took his life and said, here's what it looks like to do it. Do this with your life. Get the gospel to every nation. And Jessica and I named Desmond, our son, Desmond Carry. James, for this reason, in honor of Carrie, but primarily because our prayer for Desmond is that he would give his life to this end, to this call of getting the gospel to every corner of the planet, and whatever that looks like for Desmond one day, that he would give his life to this purpose that we've all been called to. So before we move on, let me, let me address one question that may have popped into your mind as we read this this morning, if you're paying attention. In particular, that God desires all people to be saved. What does this mean? What's the meaning of this? What does it mean, especially when you hold this truth up in light of other passages of Scripture, even from Paul, the same author, the divine uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through this same guy's pen or quill as he's writing that teaches divine election. Right? How do we hold these up together? Because we see them both in Scripture. I'll give you some examples. Places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, where Paul himself says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul again says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, and in love he predestined us for adoption. Then you get to Romans 8, and Paul says again, those he He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. And those are just a few from Paul. You have the rest of the New Testament, places like Matthew 11, John chapter 6, Acts chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 1, to name a few. So how do you reconcile God desires all to be saved, 1 Timothy chapter 2, with God has chosen you specifically for salvation, for adoption, to be His son. Let me first say, if you're hoping that I'm going to reconcile this completely for you this morning, I'm sorry to disappoint you. In the few moments that we have left in this sermon this morning, I'm not going to settle something that the church has been wrestling with for 2,000 years. So if that's your hope, you're going to be disappointed. Let me also say, it's not our responsibility or within our capabilities to resolve the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in such a way that it's going to satisfy every one of your questions and resolve all of your tensions. It's not going to happen. Let me just maybe say for a moment, pull back the curtain and show you where I'm at. I don't have a problem personally with having these sorts of tensions in my theology, right? Where I see one thing in scripture and I see another thing in scripture and I can't see how they perfectly fit together. A lot of people that would drive them nuts. For me, I'm like, I see both of them. And I'm okay with that tension, because I, in my finite little brain, I know that I don't understand everything in the way that God operates and functions and, and sovereignly rules over this world. And so I see them both in his word. He gave us his word, so he meant for us to see both of them, and I'm going to believe both of them. That's, that's where I'm at. And so let me just share with you what I think we absolutely can know as a result of seeing both of these in scripture in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So a couple things. One this does not mean that all will be saved, right? So some wrongly use this passage. There's some people that will teach and some commentaries that will teach universalism as a result of this passage, right? That, that's baloney, right? We, we, don't, we don't affirm that. This is not teaching, and certainly all of Scripture does not teach, that every person will be ultimately saved because God desires it, right? But you could, you could go there with this wrongly. Only those who, by grace, through faith in the gospel, believe upon Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, only those will be saved. So whatever this text means, it doesn't mean that, that all people will be saved. Two, this does not mean that God's will has been thwarted. I think that's another temptation here. Some have argued that if God desires all to be saved, and yet all will not ultimately be saved, then in some sense, God is not in control of everything, that he's not sovereign over this world, and that's clearly not true. From beginning to end, Scripture is clear that God is sovereign over all things, all of his creation, and his will can't be thwarted. This is Job chapter 42, verse 2. Let me give you maybe an example where we see something else like this. I mean, this is the one we often get hung up on, but let me just give you another one. So God says, do not murder. That's clearly his declared will, that we would not murder. It's a violation of his own law. He's sovereign Yet, at the same time, right, so he said that in scriptures, and yet at the same time, he's sovereign over the murder of his own son. And not only is he sovereign over it, he in fact sent his son to the earth for that purpose. He ordained it to be the case before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time. All of that to say, church, is that there is mystery in scripture. There are tensions we're going to have in our theology if we're holding to the scriptures that we're not going to be able to resolve perfectly here on this earth. And so we hold uh, what we know to be true. God desires all people to be saved? Yes. Hearty amen. God is sovereign over salvation? Yes. Hearty amen. And we let it land there. So I told you there's two parts, right? Well, that's only part one of this theological motivation behind the call, verses one and two. It's twofold it's God's desire, which we see, his desires that all would be saved. And then, second, second part of this motivation is his work. Continue reading with me verses 5 and 6. I know we've read it, but I want you to hear it again. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So everything, church, rests on God's work. Your salvation in totality rests on God's work. So that means a few things. Let's look in the two verses that we just read and see what that means. It means first, we, we see God's unity. Verse 5, that he is one. He's one. And this truth is perverted now and then in the church of Ephesus by some, as to say he's, he's one. Yeah, he's one. He's ours. He's our, our God and not anyone else's, right? That's what the false teachers in Ephesus were teaching, that he's our God by living by these other additional rules and laws that they put in place. And so, church, we have to ask, and, and I think we need to wrestle with this, though we wouldn't say that with our lips, do our lives say that, right? Like we would never say he's our God, not yours. At least I hope we would never say that. But, but by the way do we live, do we sometimes live like that? Like I've experienced what it means to be born again in Christ, but by our, our lips being sealed, we're not offering that to others. So in a sense, functionally, we're saying the same thing. So whenever we understand this doctrine rightly, we see that the fact that he is the one and only God, it actually supports the universality and the global nature of the gospel. If he's the one and only God, then he must be, because he's the only one, the God of both the Jews and Gentiles, right? Listen to this quote from Kent Hughes. This is is right on the money, and, and I couldn't say this any better. He says, our exclusive faith, right, that there's one God, Our exclusive faith leads necessarily to our inclusive mission, that the one God desires all peoples to be saved. That's really good. Like I'm going to say that again a little slower in case you want to write that down. and Remember that one because that one's a good one. Our exclusive faith, that there's only one God, leads necessarily to our inclusive mission, that that one God desires all people to be saved. Not only do we see God's unity in his work, We see the the Son's mediatorship. We see God the Son's mediatorship. The exclusive God, the one God, has an exclusive mediator. Look at verse 5. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Some of our Awana kids memorize that verse, and and what a precious truth it is. And here's what it means, church. It means that there is only one go-between. There's only one. There's only one who could be mediator. One who could stand in our place before God, the God-man. And he's uniquely that one person because he is fully God and he is fully man, born in the likeness of men, and he is the only one who can stand before God on our behalf. Now, we've already mentioned the book of Job once this morning. And if you've never read the book of Job, go and read it. Job has horrendous things, unimaginable things happen to him. His family's taken away. His wife's taken away. His livelihood is taken away. His health is taken away. His home is taken away. Everything is stripped of him. And then in chapter 9, verse 33, here's what Job says. "Is Is there no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us? And then we get to the New Testament. We get to the Gospels, and Jesus answers that call. It's like you get to the Gospels and you see Jesus raise his hand and say, I'm the arbiter. I'm the one. I'm the one who is uniquely able to lay his hand, so to speak, on the Father and lay his hand on sinful humans and say, I'll be the go-between. I'll be the one who will reconcile. I'll be the one who all of this can fall upon. There is no other. He's our mediator. And then thirdly, in the work of God, we see God the Son's payment. We see God the Son's payment. The final element of God's work mentioned in this passage is the infinite ransom paid by God the Son. Paid by God the Son. Look at verse 6. It says, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. So not only is Christ unique in who he is as mediator, Christ is unique in what he has done and that he's gave himself as a, as a ransom for us by dying for us. So This this is the beautiful picture of the gospel, church. This is the beautiful picture of the gospel that he didn't deserve death. He was perfect. That's what we see in the scriptures. He never committed one single sin. We, on the other hand, we did deserve death. We violated every one of God's commands. And yet, the picture that we see in the gospel is that he died even though we owed the price. This is the beautiful exchange. This is what happens in the gospel. Our sins must be covered because God is holy He can't just sweep sin under the rug like an impartial judge. Because we are unholy and we are sinful, our sins must be covered. And they will be covered in one of two ways. Either one, you will pay the penalty for your sins for all eternity in a literal place called hell, in agony. Or the other option, and the only other option, is that you surrender your life to Christ who has paid the penalty of your sins in His agony on the cross. Those are the two options, and that's it. Those are the only two options. Church, the gospel, the beautiful gospel that we are to uphold and preach with our mouths is that Christ took our sins. He took, that, that, that God, the Father, took the full payment of sin upon himself, and that in the process, he rescued us from sin and death. The payment was pain, and the rescue was made. Jesus died on our behalf. That's the gospel. And so we've seen this morning, we're called to global prayer and godly living. That's the call, verses 1 and 2. We've seen that, that we're given this glorious theological ground, uh, underworking, foundation, motivation for the call in verses 3 through 6. Namely, we see God's desire and God's work. And then finally, our last observation, number 3. We see the great implication of this call, the great implications, the conclusions, the application, what it looks like to live this out in verse 7. So look at verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You see what Paul's doing again here, right, church? He's saying, hey guys, the fact that God chose me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles is proof that God desires to reach all peoples, because the Gentiles were the far-off ones. They were the ones that were not included in the family. God's appointed me to be a preacher to them. It shows you that his heart's for all people. The fact that he chose me for this unique task is proof to you that as a Christ follower, you are obligated to pray for and reach out to everyone, verses 1 and 2. And so when you put all of this together, you see that what Paul's doing in these first seven verses of chapter 2 is he's making one tight, concise argument, right? That the church has a global, life-saving mission. So according to verse 1, the church is to pray for all people, According to verse 7, the church is to proclaim the gospel to all people. And between those verses, those two verses, the universal concern of the church arises from the universal concern of God. That's what we see. That's the argument he's making here. And so the takeaway for us, as we are the people of God now in our day and age, is that we preach the gospel to all people. Look at the the, the, the way that he uses these words in verse 7. There's two words specifically that he uses that give us our marching orders. He says, first, you're to be a herald of the gospel. Your translation... If it's like mine says that Paul was appointed a preacher, but I actually don't like that translation because I think we missed the meaning. I think we missed the point because in our day and age, when we think of preacher, we think of the person doing what I'm doing right now. The person behind a pulpit giving a sermon or something like that. But that's not what Paul had in mind here. He didn't have this scene in mind when he said that. No, the word is better translated in in the Greek, a herald. Someone that, 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 that would stand and announce something. Think of an announcer at a sporting event or a political messenger in a royal court who would stand and announce something. Now, we don't use the word herald very often in our day, and perhaps that's why the ESV and other transla- and translations use preacher. But in that day, that scene would have been really apparent to them. Someone who's announcing uh, news or information that's vitally important. If you watch The Office, uh, uh, Jim convinces Dwight to be a herald at a garden party. And it's, it's hilarious because Dwight ends up looking like a fool, per usual. Uh, but this is the idea that we would stand and announce for everyone to hear that there's truth to be believed. That, that, that you, brother and sister, not just the pastor or the people that would stand in a pulpit and preach, but you, brother and sister, are called to be a herald this week. To announce to people dying in their sin that there's a Savior. To announce to people that they don't have to fear death anymore. To announce to people that Christ the King has conquered death. To tell them there's eternal life. and they may be saved from eternal death. That's the first implication there. We're to be heralds of the gospel. Second, there's another word Paul uses and we're wrapping up. We're to help followers heed the commands of Christ. The final thing that Paul says is that he's a teacher. That's a different word there in the Greek, to the Gentiles. That means that after people trust in the cross of Christ, we come alongside them and teach them to follow the commands of Christ. That's what Paul's doing. And he, and you see that's what he's doing because he's talking about the Gentiles. Remember, they don't have any background. They don't have any understanding or context for what it means to follow Christ. That's why he's teaching them. And this is what, he, what he's doing. He, goes in and he preaches the gospel people hear and believe the gospel and that he teaches them the implications of having been changed by the gospel this is our call as well church i mean this is this is part of the great commission in matthew 28 jesus tells us to teach everything that he's commanded we're called to make known the truth of god's word and it's and it's in this order don't don't miss this right lost folks we preach (laughs) They hear and believe the gospel. Then we teach the commands of Christ. That's discipleship. And when we get that order wrong, it really ends up with us trying to force the world, lost people, to look like followers of Christ, which we don't want in the first place, right? Like, It's like putting lipstick on a pig. It may have the appearance of godliness, but there's no transformation. There's no heart change. There's no work of Christ in people that are conforming them to the image of Christ. And so we preach the good news. They believe the good news, and then we teach them what it means to follow Christ. That's why church... As the church, we are more concerned with gospel conversion than we are with behavior modification or with, or with government policy that would manipulate morality or with a societal revolution by which we would see this mass. We want King Jesus to change hearts such that then he would change lifestyles. So church, let's pray and work to that end. Let's be a people, the people of God that would pray globally and live godly so that we have the opportunity to preach the gospel to everyone. Let's pray together.